Welcome to Marvel by the Month, the podcast that takes you through the history of Marvel Comics one month at a time. My name is Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. So we have come to the end of our sixth season here. Um, this, uh, The end of this season marks the end of a very important era at Marvel Comics. Jack Kirby, the king of comics, the co-creator of virtually all of the company's greatest Silver Age characters, has turned in his last pages. He's heading across town to Marvel's chief rival, DC Comics. Uh, We talked about uh, Kirby's last Silver Age Marvel issues in a previous episode, but we really wanted to bring the Kirby era at Marvel to a close with with a special episode. Um, We could not have asked for a better guest to help us do exactly that. Um, for the past five decades, he's had an enormously successful career as a writer in both comics and television. His comics credits include Gold Keys, Disney and Warner Brothers comics, Scooby-Doo, Tarzan, Black Hawk, The DN Agents and Gru the Wanderer. If you grew up in the 80s, as we did, uh, you almost certainly watched a cartoon with his name in the credits uh, from Dungeons and Dragons to Thundar the Barbarian to Garfield and Friends. Uh, he is a former assistant to Jack Kirby, the author of the definitive Kirby biography, Kirby King of Comics. Mark Evanier, I cannot tell you how delighted I am to have you with us on Marvel by the Month. Wow, I'm I'm impressed. <laughs> you you may be almost, sound almost important there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I I think I first read your name uh, when I started collecting the epics. Epic Comics run of, of Grew the Wanderer sometime around issue number 25. Uh, so uh, I have been waiting 35 years to try to get a straight answer to this question. <laughs> what do you do on that book exactly? <laughs> I have no idea. I have no clue whatsoever. But since I don't get paid, it doesn't really matter. No. Oh, there you go. Excellent. The, the, the actual answer is Sergio Aragonis is a brilliant cartoonist. English is not his first language. It's not even his second language. <laughs> and he needed a wordsmith and co- co-conspirator to make the comic what he wanted it to be. So he brought me in and uh, he's my best friend in the world, at least in the male division. And uh, we work out stories together. He takes the lead in most cases in figuring out the storyline. I then take over and I try to edit a bit or, or condense things or and add in the dialogue. And we do, we do, we basically do the comic to in, entertain each other. If other people like it, that's great. But I really only care if Sergio 
is happy with what I do. And he really only cares if I'm happy with what he contributes. <laughs> and we've now been doing this comic for 40 years, just about. We were actually talking of that. Um, Rob, I think you were just reading uh, a blog post. Yeah, I was I was reading your blog post about the 40th anniversary, realizing that Brian and I share a birthday, which is January 15th. <laughs> and wow. uh and that happened to be the the publication date of of Destroyer Duck I think the first appearance of Gru so uh we we have we share the same birthday as Gru uh we're a little older than Gru but um you know it's a it's an honor <laughs> <laughs> if you if you say it is fine <laughs> i think it's uh <laughs> I, w- I would be ashamed to tell anyone that myself. <laughs> just, that's just me. All right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, by, by way of a check this out, this is a totally professional segue I'm about to do here. Um, so the, the first appearance of Gru has a Jack Kirby tie in, uh, does it not? It's, it was in a comic that Jack drew the cover and lead story for, Sir mm-hmm. Duck. Um, my friend Steve Gerber, the late, unfortunately, Steve Gerber. Uh, was locked in a lawsuit with Marvel. And as you know, lawsuits are very expensive. Um, and Marvel had a lot more money than he, Steve did. And and, a lot, and it still has a lot more money than any of us have. <laughs> um, and the suit was getting to the point where Steve might have to drop it because he just simply couldn't go that much into debt mm-hmm. for it. And so a bunch of his friends got together and we did a benefit comic book. None of us got paid. Jack Kirby drew 20 pages without um, compensation. Alfredo Alcala inked the 20 pages. Tom Wierzakowski lettered them. Steve Lailoha colored them and helped out with some art corrections. Neil Adams inked the cover. Uh, Steve and I edited the book, and we had some space for backup features. So I asked a bunch of my friends, or Steve asked a couple people, would you guys write or draw something for the back of the book? And I knew that Sergio, who was a very close friend of mine already then, was fiddling around with this barbarian character of his. And he had done dozens and dozens of sketches. Sergio had worked not that long before on a revival of the TV series Laugh-In, which was at NBC. He was a cast member in addition to being a writer and a guy who did cartoon graphics. And people remember that as the the laugh-in show that did not have Rona Martin, but did have Robin Williams in the cast. Okay. (laughs) And Sergio had tons of drawings of Gru on laugh-in stationery. I think the show lost money because Sergio had drawn on all the stationery. (laughs) I I have early sketches of Gru on laugh-in stationery. Wow. And he had done a one four-page story, which didn't require much dialogue. It required, I think it's got two or three words in it. Um, and he had done that story. I'd seen it. And I went to him and I said, I want to publish that in the back of this comic we're doing. And Sergio offered to do a longer story, a new story. He was he was very much behind the cause of artists and writers' rights, creators' rights. And I said, no, just give me the four pages of Gru. Let's get out of here. And <laughs> a very charming friend of mine who's also not long, no longer with us, Gordon Kent, did the coloring on it. Mm-hmm. And we published this story in the back of Destroyer Duck number one. And all of a sudden, Serge is getting calls all over the place where people say, where's another Gru story? We want to see Gru some more. Can, can we? And other publishers were talking about wanting to publish Gru. And uh, Steve was able to keep his lawsuit going until they reached a satisfactory, mutually satisfactory uh, settlement. And Gru was born and 
everybody who was involved in Destroyer Duck number one was very proud of it. That's fantastic. Nice. Uh, and so uh, you you have history, like personal and professional history with with Jack Kirby. Um, you you met and started working for Kirby uh, right at the beginning of your professional career. Is that right? Yeah, I got out of high school in. Um, June of 1969, and I became a professional writer of other things two weeks after that. <laughs> and then about two weeks after that, I met Jack Kirby uh, as in my role of president of the local comic book club. Mm-hmm. Jack and his wife, Roz, had moved to Southern California, and they were uh, uh, just getting settled in. They were living at that time in a town called Irvine, which mm-hmm. is about an hour south of Los Angeles, a rented house waiting for, while well, they waited to figure out a place to permanently live. And uh, they had gone to a comic book, not a comic book, a science fiction convention. There was a science fiction convention on the July 4th weekend at the Miramar Hotel in Santa Monica. Forgive me, I have a real good memory and I stick in way too many details in those <laughs> stories. And no complaints. They, 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 Jack now new to Southern California was thinking, you know, I want to start some sort of a comic book operation out here. Um, at this moment, he did not know he'd be leaving Marvel, although he suspected it was a strong possibility. Mm-hmm. And he thought about maybe I can find some young writers and artists and work with them. I, he, I, he liked the idea of working with young talent. He always did. He didn't have as much opportunity to as he would have liked in his career. So there was this, there were no comic conventions in, L, in California at that time. This was before the first San Diego comic. Wow. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, 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 Jack and Roz went to this con- science fiction convention. They paid admission. They were not, Jack was not a guest. And uh, some of our comic book club members were there. I wasn't because I was working on a professional, my, one of my first big professional assignments that weekend. And some guys who were in our comic book clubs asked if Jack would like to come to the, our, one of our club meetings and be a guest speaker. And he said, yes, although that somehow never materialized, but Roz invited our board of directors, which included me down to Irvine <laughs> to sit and talk about comics all day. And, and wow. so a week later um, we went down there and spent the, an afternoon with Jack and Roz. And uh, you know, I thought I was just meeting my favorite comic book artist. Um, I tell people this is, this is a slight exaggeration for comedic effect that the first person I ever met in co- who did comics was Jerry Siegel, which is true. Well, actually he was the second person, but I met Jerry Siegel, the co-creator of Superman. Then I met Bob Kane, the co-creator of Batman. And then I met Jack Kirby, the co-creator of everything else. <laughs> and, uh, and and every time I do that joke, somebody gets mad at me saying, well, Jack didn't co-create Wonder Woman. You know, Jack didn't co-create, <laughs> didn't co-create the spirit. You know, I go, no, it's a joke. And actually, uh, the first person I ever met in did comics was a comic book artist that a few people watching this will have heard of named Ken Landau, who drew comics for ACG and other houses in the 50s, who was happened to be the father of a kid I went to high school with. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, but... Uh, I had met Bob Kane. Uh, I met I met Jerry Siegel, who was a lovely, wonderful, creative human being. I met Bob Kane, who was not. Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> and, and Bob Kane told me, I read some of my writing and told me I had no future as a professional. I would never make it as a professional writer. I, I had no talent. And, I, and, and that would have bothered me if, I, if it hadn't been Bob Kane. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I, I keep meaning to take his advice and, and give up being trying to be a writer, but I've been doing it now for 54 years. So it's, <laughs> it's a little late. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm, and, and I thought, well, I'm meeting Miss Jack Kirby. I never thought it would lead to a job. Actually, it led to two jobs because Jack recommended me to a company called Marvel Mania International, which I had heard of. Actually, I, this is, I'm going to, this story is way too long, but essentially <laughs> on my way to the meeting with Jack, I found out about Marvel Mania and they invited me to come in as the president of the comic club. But I said, I'm going to see Jack Kirby. I'll come by tomorrow. <laughs> and, and when I went in the next day, the gentleman who ran it said, uh, Jack Kirby thinks we ought to hire you because you know an awful lot about comics and we need somebody who knows about comics. Or he, Jack felt they needed someone who knew more about comics than they did. So I worked for Marvel Mania for a while and then in, and as did a friend of mine named Steve Sherman and a few of my other friends. And in February of 1970, uh, Jack and Roz came down to the office to complain that they, like everyone else who worked for Marvel Mania, had not been paid. <laughs> and uh, they took Steve and me out to lunch and swore us to secrecy. We went to Canner's Delicatessen and over potato pancakes, Jack told us that he was leaving Marvel for DC. And Steve's reaction was like, how can you do that? You're Jack Kirby. You have to be at Marvel, you know, <laughs> Marvel will and, collapse. Yeah. <laughs> and so for a month, he, he wanted us to be his assistants, which we said, yeah, sure. We, we didn't know what it was going to pay. We didn't know what it was going to involve. But, you know, Jack was. Um, and if you learn nothing else from me about comic book history, learn this. Jack Kirby was the nicest man you could ever want to meet. He was a brilliant man. He just radiated clever thoughts and insights and comments. He wasn't always the easiest person to understand. His mind jumped around from topic to topic. And there were times when he'd say something to me with great meaning, and I'd go, hey, that's true, Jack. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And then <laughs> hours, days, weeks, months later, I go, oh, I get it now. And, and, and I go, that was brilliant. And he, and he had great insights. He was very honest. He was very, um, I, I could not have asked for a better person to impact my life at that point and infuse me with enthusiasm and ideas. And, and he treated everybody like a professional. He was 87,000 times more experienced than Steve and I were, but he treated us as equals. He treated everybody very well. Uh, including some people I think didn't deserve to be treated well. <laughs> and um, I did not realize that, you know, for the rest of my life, I would be talking about him every single day or thinking about him every single day. Wow. Uh, and, and I cannot, you know, I do, I go to, when I go to comic conventions, I almost always host a Jack Kirby tribute panel of some sort mm -hmm. because I'm going to be talking about Jack anyway, all convention. <laughs> so we might as well get everyone in the room at the same time and discuss him and answer questions about him. And to this day, I go to comic conventions. Well, not to this day because we don't go anywhere now. Yeah, right. But, but uh, <laughs> when I did go to comic conventions, you look around and you see Jack everywhere. Uh, 
-hmm. You see characters he had designed. You see art styles he pioneered. You see people he influenced. Uh, I tell people if he wasn't your favorite artist, he was probably your favorite artist's favorite artist. <laughs> um, you see uh, the, the whole dynamic of what came to be comics mm -hmm. had a lot to do with Jack. This, uh, when people talked about, talk about like movies that are, that are comic book movies, they're talking a lot about the energy that Jack brought to comics that other people uh, tried to emulate. And I cannot go to any, I go to meetings about TV shows and movies I may or may not work on. Mm -hmm. And at some point somebody says, Somebody told me you knew Jack Kirby. Did you really know? And it's like, it's like saying, you know, do you, did you really know Santa Claus? Right. <laughs> you actually met Santa Claus? Um, and I've met, been very privileged to meet a lot of my heroes over the years. Not just Jack, not just lots of other people in comics, but he is still the outstanding person that I am glad I met and the one I think about and talk about the most. Yeah. And here I am. You know, <laughs> doing it now. <laughs> I'm do I'm do I'm doing your show because you wanted me to talk about Jack Kirby. So. Oh, well, and we're we're so happy you are. Uh, so you you grew up as a fan of Marvel comics, right? So if, we, if we've got the the timing right, here, yeah, right? I grew up I grew up as a fan of all comics, right? Mm -hmm. I I tell people that you know when I was born, the doctor slapped and I dropped a copy of Walt Disney's comics and stories. <laughs> I read I I until. Fairly recently, I had more comic books than anyone I'd ever met in the world. I mean, you know, Chuck Rosansky, you know, Mile High Comics has, has you know, <laughs> barns full of them. But, you know, of, of collectors, of guys who have like a house full of them. Uh, I finally had to sell some of them off and, and give some of them away. Mm -hmm. But um, I always I learned to read from comic books. I always had tons of them. I was fascinated with the business. I never thought I'd get into it for, well, for a long time, I didn't think I'd get into it because mm -hmm. I was born in Los Angeles and reared in Los Angeles and had no intention of moving back to New York. Right. And if you read fanzines in the sixties, every interview with anybody in the industry, and there weren't that many of them said, well, if you want to work in comics, you got to live in, live in, live in New York or within commuting distance of the Marvel or DC offices. Right. And I did, and I wasn't going to do that. So I, um, you know, just figured, well, okay, I won't do comic books. I'll just enjoy them. And mm -hmm. I made a left turn, a couple of weird left turns in my life. And suddenly I was writing comic books. <laughs> what was it like to, to read early Marvel comics as a fan uh, during that era? Well, it was, it was exciting. One of the things that, that is lost on people now, because it, it no, you'll understand how this no longer applies when you were buying Marvel comics in the early sixties, as I was, I think the first fantastic four I ever bought was like number eight or nine. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, it was possible at that point to collect all the fantastic fours. <laughs> you could not in night in that year, you could not collect all the supermans or Batman's or wonder woman's, you know, or, or Disney comic, whatever, or Archie. There was, it was not, absolutely humanly possible to, but you could get it on the ground floor and one of the appeals of marvel was that you were watching the mythology formed in front of your eyes mm -hmm. and you were watching new comics and new characters come out and every time you went to the newsstand there was something new there and if you if you look over one of these websites that shows you all the comics that came out in march of 63 and all the then the whole ones come in april you'll find something new 
on at least one Marvel cover, some new character, some new concept, uh, some new exciting. And if you look at the DCs, you'll see the return of the for the 48th time of Batmite and the 400th time of Lex Luthor and the 300th time of Brainiac or whatever. (laughs) You're coming in in the middle of a story and it's your father's story. It's a story that was started, you know, in the 40s and 50s, which at that time seemed like, you know, centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there was that made Superman important because he was part of a heritage, but he was your father, part of your father's heritage, your mm-hmm. uncle's heritage. Um, and, you know, you, you, it, the, some of those characters were rooted in World War II, right. which at that time felt like, you know, a long, long time ago. Um, so that was one of the appeals of Marvel at the time. Another appeal was that um, they were colorful. DC seemed a little stodgy. When you wrote mm-hmm. a letter into DC Comics, as I did many times, you wrote to Dear Editor or mm-hmm. Dear Mr. Weisinger. Mm-hmm. If you wrote to Marvel, you wrote to, hey, Dear Stan and Jack. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were on a first-name basis with them, and there was a kind of a breezy... Um, uh, friendly atmosphere in the ads, in the, in the letter bullpen page, and the letter pages. Um, it is one of the main things that I think Stan Lee contributed to the success of Marvel was that kind of editorial friendliness and accessibility. Uh, and uh, and they were good comics. They, I read everything. I was not a Marvel nut. I was not a DC nut. I was not a, you know, I, I bought... Uh, and you could buy at that time, you know, comics when I bought them were 10 cents and then 12 cents. And, you know, I was able to always have a couple of bucks. I mean, I tell people if you, here's the frightening st- statistic. Um, if you were buying all the Marvel superhero comics in 19, pick a year, 65 or 66, uh, there were, it's about two bucks a month commitment. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, you can stretch it to three if you also bought Millie the Model and the Westerns. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. You know, but but it was very affordable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was affordable in a way that collecting any line of comics these days is not. Yeah. No, I did. I mean, I, I think Alan Moore talks about this and like, you know, the, the early appeal of comics and, you know, how it was such a an accessible and affordable, you know, a very working class form of entertainment. Like, I think his line was that, you know, you could you could go in with a couple bucks and walk out with a slab of culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I used there was a period, a couple of periods in my life when I was on the Marvel freebie mailing list. When mm-hmm. I get a big box or bundle every week of the new Marvel comics. And one day, just for fun, I piled up the month's worth of Marvel comics and took my calculator and figured out what it would cost to buy them all. And it was over a hundred dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know these days if too many fourteen-year-old kids have a hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, you know, they have more than I did when I was fourteen, but I don't think they have that much <laughs> no. to spend on comic books, generally yeah. speaking. No, I don't, I I think you're absolutely right. Um. What do you think were some of the the highest points of those early days of of Marvel? Like, what what are some of the memories that really stand out to you from, you know, the the early to mid sixties? Well, I loved most of the superhero books, some mm-hmm. some more than others. Uh, the books that had Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby in them were especially exciting, but they were all exciting to some. If if you bought them all as I did. 
you almost didn't see them as individual comics. It was almost mm-hmm. like like one comic that was published, you know, four times a week, and then you go and get a you know another another four issues of it next week because mm-hmm. the characters not only crossed over, but even when they didn't cross over, they still felt like part of the same universe. I think the readers may have understood the concept of a Marvel universe before the people doing the comics did <laughs> because it was a strong sense. The DC comics, you know, and I, I, they felt like, and I found later this is true, they were done by a team of editors who never read each other's comics. Oh, really? Yeah. The, the, guys, <laughs> okay. at, the guys at DC... They had six or seven editors, and each guy edited five or six books. And they generally not only didn't um, read each other's books, but they would get together and tell each other how lousy each other's books were. My books are better than your books. Um, DC was not a creator-friendly environment, even for the editors there Wow, at that time. And you could kind of tell the Marvels all came from you know a small group of people. Mm-hmm. And and I later understood how much Jack was influencing the comics he did not work on, at least did not get credit on, and how uh, Marvel was done by a smaller team. Stan's mm-hmm. workload, Stanley's workload, was about you know six times the workload of of Julius Schwartz at DC or George Cashton or Robert Kaniger, mm-hmm. um, and it showed, you know. And I, I have this. Um, interest uh in the comics that i am kind of more interested in you know jack kirby and jerry siegel and and you know neil adams and the, the creators than i am in the characters yeah mm-hmm. uh there are certain people you've probably had on this show if you want to talk to them about marvel in you know a given year they'll be talking to you about uh you know iron man villains and new members of the avengers and and you know, new gods in the Thor comic and new members of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I'll be right, talking right. to you about John Romita and John Buscema and, you know, Gil Kane and Gene Colan and and those people who interest me more. And I, I, I my interest is a lot of it was how are these comics come to be? How are they made? Why is this guy's work on this comic better than that same guy's work on another comic in another <laughs> place? Mm-hmm. Um uh, that fascinates me an awful lot. The nuts yeah. and bolts of how the comics are made fa- fascinates me more. We did, um, you know, we I used to a couple of times hosted trivia question contests at Comic-Con. And, you know, a guy like Mark Wade can, you know, na- name the Legion of Superheroes, their home planets, <laughs> what they had, what they had for lunch on Tuesday. Uh, and I'm not knocking this at all. He's a sure. good guy, good friend of mine. Um, that stuff leaves me cold. I just don't, mm-hmm. I don't retain it, but I can tell you, you know, that Steve did going fantastic for number 13 mm-hmm. and already, and already Simic lettered it. I remember mm-hmm. I retain that more than I do details about the fictional characters. Yeah. That seems to be where we're getting now after reading this 10 year block of Marvel's publishing output for superhero comics, um, where, we discuss Gene Colan or Vince Coletta zinking on Kirby's work more than we did. We ever thought we would be doing, but you know, we're, we're getting there now. Um, of course coming at it from all directions, reading comics our whole lives, but, uh, it's, it's amazing just to get so invested in Wally Wood showing up or, you know, what Bill Everett did or just, 
we, we are now becoming the same. <laughs> We're trying to like connect this for people who are interested in Marvel in a broader sense, but we are definitely our side conversations are all about this, uh, this process, you know, and, yeah, and yeah. that's why yeah. Kirby's become so important and central. And it's frightening to think that we're going to keep reading comics without him as we cover Marvel comics specifically. Yeah. So I think DC has had a change in leadership at this point, right? Carmine has just come in as the yes, editor. In yes. Chief. Yes. One and, of the, and, yeah. One of the yeah. strange things is that when I went from, reading DC comics to being in the office. Yeah. I went through a time warp of three mm. months because uh, the, the stuff that was on the wall at DC or being processed was the stuff that I was reading that I would not see on my newsstand for three more months. Uh-huh. Right. More months. <laughs> so all of a sudden I jumped ahead in time and, and D, those were three months where DC had changed the, they'd taken the DC bullet off the, the old, they had moved around a lot of the editors. They'd fired a lot of edit artists. They moved everything around. And all of a sudden, Everything was different. Mm-hmm. I was at DC Comics the day Mort Weisinger turned in his last issue of Superman. Wow. I had, had to be there that day, and Superman was no longer his. I, I watched Mort Weisinger walk out of the DC offices for his last time as an editor. I think he visited later, mm-hmm. but he, he, he was no longer involved with the company. Wow. And, and I was there um, when I went to Mad Magazine, Angela Torres was there, the artist Angela Torres. I met him and I thought, what's he doing? And Mad, he doesn't draw for Mad. Well, he did, but his stuff hadn't come out yet. <laughs> so I, I, I have now leaped into the future when Angela Torres is part of the Mad staff. Right, right, right. So, and things like that. Um, yeah. So you, you, you know, it's just a matter of where you are at a given time. Mm-hmm. A lot of us do interesting things because we just happen to be in the right place. Sure. Were you, and, at, in your capacity at DC, were you, representing some of this move for Jack or were you, you know, what at that time, at that time we were just Jack's assistants and we just visiting. We, we were visiting uh, a man named Saul Harrison, who was the production manager there and who was more important at the company than that title would lead you to believe. Mm-hmm. He was really kind of the assistant art director of the company and the, the guy who kept things running. Uh, he sat us down he was the first person we sat with at DC and talked with. And he started telling us, we've got to get Jack to draw less like Marvel and more like Kurt Swan, uh, which a was not going to happen. Right. And B yeah. which other people there did not want to have happen and C, it's like, Oh, maybe this isn't the happiest place for Jack to be now. And he fought mm-hmm. with Saul Harrison and Saul's departments for years yeah. He didn't like the coloring they did on his characters. He didn't like the editorial changes they made on his characters. He didn't like the production work they did in his characters. And we were all of a sudden in the middle of that political little firestorm there. Yeah. And, you know, so, so we, we had no, I mean, not only did we have no power on behalf of Jack, nobody but Jack had power on behalf of Jack. Jack was right, the man right. who did what he was going to do and he made his own decisions. I always think it's... It's so silly. People sometimes, um, I mentioned, you know, because again, I witness a history. Mm-hmm. Somebody mm-hmm. asked me in a, on a Facebook or someplace two years ago about how Jack felt about certain inkers he had. Mm. And the truth of the matter was at that point, when I met Jack, he didn't really care who inked his work. Huh. He didn't really have it. He didn't, you know, these are all guys. He grew up in the Depression. 
it's important for everybody to make a living. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. So he didn't want to, if he didn't think some one acre was as good as another, he didn't want to say, Oh, get rid of that guy. Cause that guy might need that job to feed his family or pay his rent. And, and he also felt that people didn't buy the comics for the inking. They mm. bought it for the story. And if the story was all there, if his story was being told and people could read it, then it was almost an insult to him to say, well, you know, your work's only good if Joe said on it. No, no, no. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he had pride in what he put on the page above him, you know, and, and the fact that Joe said inked it or Frank Giacoy inked it or whoever didn't make matter that much. Now he kind of changed that attitude mm-hmm. and had a little to do with Jack wanting inking more under his control, more sympathetic to his work. Mm-hmm. But um, what happens is that I would say to on Facebook, Someone, uh, I mentioned that Jack did not like Dan Adkins inking him. And he'd, and he'd ask politely without no tirade, could you just give that guy, put that guy in a different book? I'd rather he didn't ink my work. And there are fans out there who love that work. And mm. I, and they think either I'm lying or that I, mm. that I poisoned Jack's mind and convinced him <laughs> that the work wasn't good. We had, um, we had John Buscema on a couple of panels I did at San Diego. John Buscema did not like most of the people who inked his work. Mm. He liked his brother. Yep. He liked Frank Giacoya and almost nobody else. Mm-hmm. Huh. And, and fans would say to him, uh, didn't you love the way uh, George Klein inked your work? And he'd go, no, I hated it. No, no, no. You, <laughs> you must. George Klein is the guy who inked you on the Avengers. Remember the Avengers, <laughs> the Fish Vision story? Yeah, John would say, I, I thought it was terrible inking. I hated it. I it was terrible. <laughs> and they go, no, no, you don't understand. You can't, possibly, you can't possibly not love that work. Right. And somehow <laughs> they would say, well, Evan Ear must have talked him into it. <laughs> if you ever met John Buscema, nobody talked him into anything. <laughs> yeah, he was a big stubborn guy yeah and so yeah. you know and and this is i i find this this happens with jack a lot people are upset that jack doesn't like something they love doesn't mm-hmm. like this anchor or doesn't like this coloring on the, on the book something like that and they think somehow i mean i couldn't manipulate jack on anything yeah nobody could i i got him to start reconsidering vince coletta as his anchor. <laughs> and, 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 and Vince did some other things that caused Jack to, yeah. uh, however, if people do come up to me at conventions, say, thank you for getting Coletta off Jack's work. Uh, I say, thank you. You're welcome. I'm <laughs> yeah. glad, to, glad yeah. to do it. I just thought he was the wrong choice. I was at, I was at one of the New York conventions a couple of years later. And this man, I did not recognize came up to me and he said, are you Mark Evanier? And I said, uh, yes, I am. And he said, I understand you're a Vince Coletta exorcist. <laughs> I understand you were responsible for getting Coletta off, taken off Jack's work at DC. And I didn't know this could have been Coletta's brother-in-law wanting to punch me out. Or something. I didn't sure. have no idea. Well, I said, well, I, some people say I had a lot to do with it. And the man shook my hand and said, hi, I'm Frank Robbins. How is it done? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, um, you know, and I, wow. and I and I have like a thousand stories yeah. about encounters with people like that, which I find, you know, I don't tell them to say, hey, look, Frank Robbins took my hand. I tell them to tell you to, because these people were interesting people. They never got enough yeah. attention. Frank Robbins was a wonderfully talented, lovely man. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I cringe when I see people think, oh, he, well, he couldn't draw superheroes that well. Well, yeah, neither could uh, Harvey Kurtzman <laughs> or Will Eisner right. or, right, right. you know, you know I, I don't think Don Martin did a lot of great <laughs> superhero <laughs> drawings, but he was a hell of an artist. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I um, very few people in comics um, I don't I thought were bad people. Mm-hmm. I think there were a few untalented people, very few. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of miscast people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who were never allowed to be as good as they could be because of the way the system worked. I think there were people who were mistreated. I think there were pe- some talented, talented people who just were put on the wrong book with the wrong writer and the wrong inker. And, uh, and I love to tell these stories about these wonderfully talented people um, who did wonderful work much of the time for very, in very bad working conditions sometimes mm-hmm. and for very bad money. And uh, I saw editors occasionally mistreat the talent, mistreat mm-hmm. them the same way, you know, we, we talk about a Karen who mistreats the waiter in a restaurant. Right, you know, right. Um, that type of thing. Um, but I, I like to share this stuff with people because I, I was an eyewitness to it and I have no ax to grind. Uh-huh. I, I, I did. I, I mean, I have never made comics my whole life is it represents about 20% of my lifetime income comic right. books do. And uh, I, I just, I, I kind of love the field because I was never that immersed in it. My mm-hmm. life never depended on anybody buying a comic I wrote. Yeah. Right. So, right. so I, I can watch it with more of a spectator situation and i got mm-hmm. you know I, and i became an advocate for certain creator rights things as did a lot of other people but um uh i'd like to share this stuff which is why i agreed to do this show of yours <laughs> yeah well it, it, we're so happy to have you and you know i think one of the talking about you know the treatment of creators and, and talking about you know just being witness to pivotal moments in history you know the obviously the million dollar question that we have sort of been wrestling with you know this last six months or so of the show is like, what was the thing that, that made Kirby want to move on from Marvel and, or was it one thing, you know, it it was a series of things, but it pretty much came down to a lack of recognition that he was of value to the company and a a will, an unwillingness to give him the credit or any sort of financial security. Mm -hmm. That is as very simple as I can put it. He was in a situation where they could have fired him at any minute. They could have cut his pay. They could have claimed that Stanley drew the comics. Um, Jack, to understand Jack, you have to understand that there was nothing in the entire world more important to Jack Kirby than providing for his family. And that was true of many men who grew up in his time period. It was true of my father, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, who you know never went into any sort of field that Jack went into. But they were both Jewish kids born into very poor families, and it was very important that the rent there be rent paid, there, that the house be safe, that there be medical care, that there be food, that the kids be able to get braces and go to college, and that was the very important thing. And Jack in Regard and most of the things that Jack took on bridge to, the griefs, the grievances he had were things that were attacks on that mm-hmm. his ability mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. He was not treated, I believe, very well at Marvel. He didn't want to leave because he thought somehow he would get a reward 
he somehow at some point someone would say, "Hey, this guy's valuable. Let's sign him to a contract. Let's let's give him some some credit on the comics." Mm-hmm. So his name has a little value if Marvel goes under and could lead to something else. Let's right. give him some financial security. And I think that the unwillingness of various executives over the years at Marvel, the unwillingness to do that is was brain dead stupid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Forget the humanitarian. It was just really stupid from a financial standpoint. Yeah. When Jack walked out on them in March of 1970, if they had given him the deal that Rob Liefeld got on his first job, uh-huh, uh-huh. the terms, the, the, the profit sharing, the, the, the return of original art, the, you know, so on the deal, the deal that anybody got as the normal beginner's rate years later, mm-hmm. um, that would have been a great investment. If Jack had suggested one more character that had the appeal of the silver surfer. Right. In and after 1970 for them, and you know he would have, he would have come up with lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would have been like you know buying Manhattan for $22 worth of junk jewelry. Uh-huh. Right, yeah, right. It, it was would have been, and and I think it was just there. There were reasons for it, very short-sighted reasons. I mean, Martin Goodman sold Marvel for what Jack described as about the value of Ant-Man. Yeah. You know, you can't get your reward from people who don't understand you've handed them a gold mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Martin Goodman sold Marvel very cheap. And everybody who sold Marvel after that sold it for too cheap. Mm-hmm. Jack was the only guy in the 60s who said someday these characters will be multi-million dollar, multi billion dollar properties bigger than James Bond ever was. Yeah. Uh, Jack is also the guy who predicted the San Diego Convention would turn into what it turned turned into right he had a, an ability to see where things were going and trends and he was ahead of a lot of major developments and 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 uh and he wasn't listened to a lot and he yeah. was demeaned a lot uh when jack asked them about return of original art they said oh no we can't do that you, you don't understand you know in a condescending way they say you don't understand how the business works. there's no way we could ever return original art to you we can't we have to destroy it or keep it someplace for legal reasons they're too complicated we can't do that <laughs> and and, you know, and we, there's no way we could ever publish a comic we didn't own the copyright to and there's no way we could ever give you a sense of of profit sharing or percentage or bonuses of your comics we just can't do that and and it was almost you know it was almost insulting and every single thing that they told Jeff they couldn't do, they later did. Right. Yeah. And, and then they'd brag they had the best year ever. <laughs> right. So this is something I learned from comics, which is part of the reason I never made my whole living in comics. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, so that's – that is your the, the answer to your question, why did Jack leave Marvel in 1970, is mm-hmm. that they offered him a terrible contract that he felt he could not sign. Mm-hmm. And the lawyer who called him up one day basically said, just sign it or get the hell out of here. We don't need you. Wow. And you know, I don't know what you do for your, your livelihood, but I'll bet you somebody could say to you, you know, you're really you're lucky to have this job. We could replace you in two <laughs> seconds, fella. You're not very good. You might not stick around that company very long. Yeah. <laughs> might not, might be hard to get out of bed in the morning and yeah. go to work for yeah. you. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, um, you know, he had a lot of problems with the people there, including Stan. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
he went to a situation at D.C., which in many ways was worse. It certainly wasn't a lot better. Yeah. In, in all ways. Um, and, you know, J- Jack was ahead of the curve. You know, today, if you're a movie star, you know, you, you get, you know, $10 million for a movie when they don't want you. Uh, <laughs> guys like Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy did their jobs as well as you could possibly do, but they didn't get those kind of deals. Mm-hmm. Jack was mm-hmm. incomparable in the comparable way. Same way baseball players, you know, today, uh, get deals that, you know, Duke Snyder and Candy Koufax never dreamed of. Right. Uh, Jack was part of a the wrong era to get re- rich in comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he saw enough of it to know it was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, he, 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 you know, he saw the business changing and I think his reticence to blindly ups- accept that kind of peon status is one of the reasons the business changed. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah. So, you know, I, have I just given you the answer you wanted? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and do you think, do you think that, I mean, I know from, from, from reading your book, from other uh, many, many other anecdotes and talking to a lot of people, obviously Jack could see like in a, in a futurist sort of way, he could see what things would become, especially as in regards to comics, like he understood that medium and its importance and the impact it could have, but was he frustrated? I mean, I know he was, he, he somehow could just, from what I've heard and read, click back into sort of this optimistic mode, but I, I have to imagine he was very frustrated to be able to see so far ahead and be ignored and you know, sort of laughed at for his naivete or whatever, you know? Uh, yeah, he was, he was frustrated a lot. Um, something I didn't put in my book. Um, and I'm not sure why I didn't put it in because I knew about it. Uh, but it's in the next book I'm working on, Jack. Uh, when the lawyer got the phone, told Jack, you know, get out. We don't need you. We can replace you with anybody. Uh, and Jack hung up on him. Uh, Jack put his fist through a door. Wow. around and, Mm-hmm. With his drawing hand, smashed his fist through a door, a wooden door. Uh, actually, didn't hurt himself much, uh, mm-hmm. but he, yeah, he had very great frustrations, um, and very, and he was treated, you know. But there were also a lot of upsides. He he made mm-hmm. a an okay living for himself. Um, you know, it, it's uh, frequently the problem was not so much that he wasn't making a good living; is that they were doing it like tipping him. They wouldn't guarantee it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there, are guys, there are a number of guys who left comics who were making, doing very well, but nobody would guarantee it. Nobody would put it yeah. in, con- in writing. You know, um, uh, you know, if the, if the guy who gave you a verbal promise died, it wasn't worth much. And sometimes right. even if he didn't die, it wasn't worth <laughs> much. It sounds and, like that with Martin Goodman sometimes. Yeah. 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 And, <laughs> yeah. and, um, and Jack wanted the security of he wanted the security of knowing that, you know, if you were in um, most other lines of work in 1970 and you had made your employer as wealthy as he had made Marvel with his contributions, mm-hmm. you would have you'd be set for life. Right. You would have some sort of share of it in some way. You would get some sort of security. Uh, through a credit, if nothing else, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that would guarantee you you would never have to worry about your kids being able to have braces. Right. Jack could not get that. 
Uh, it is something that drove a lot of other people away from comics more more quietly. Some of their their absences weren't as noticed as Jack leaving. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a very frustrating thing for a guy who believed that you had to make sure you provided for your family. And if you, you know, if you if you cut Jack's pay or you didn't pay him for something he did, you were assaulting his ability to make the rent and pay, take care of his family yeah. and his, his own life, too. I mean, he wanted to live in a nice home. He wanted to, to, to not have to work, you know, insane hours, which he did at times. Mm-hmm. He wanted to take it a little easier. He wanted to, and he wanted to explore other things. One of the things we were robbed of is all the stuff Jack would have done if publishers said to him, do the comic you want to do, Jack. Yeah. Forget about what's going to sell right away into our current market. Forget about trying to to, to cater to the people who this month are buying Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Let's do a book and we'll back it for a couple of years and see if we bring out a whole new market. Um, it's like it's like if you were making movies and they said, okay, we only want car chase movies. We, right. we only want we only want you know uh, teen comedies. No, no. Jack was capable of doing so much more than whatever he gave us in comics. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know it, it limited him when he did get some freedom here and there. It was always with the caveat, well, you know, we've got to we've got to capture the Marvel fans. Right. You know, and, right. and uh, uh, one of the reasons comics has not grown more is because creators are financially encouraged to imitate what is sold already. Right. Do you, uh, this is sort of an aside, but I was thinking about when you were, when you're talking about what Jack was capable of, like his collage work and his interest in other sort of media that was maybe not as printable and at the time and the forms they were doing, but, uh, and was he able to give direction to people? Well, like when I know like Don Heck, it definitely improved after some, uh, talks with, with Jack, but I don't know that he was a great communicator in that way. I would be curious about his style. Jack was not the guy to teach you how to draw a head. The guy to teach you how to approach your work. Um, he was very, very positive towards both old talent and new. If any comic book artist needed a help, help, even if Jack didn't know him well, he'd say, come on over, I'll help you. Uh, he, he was very giving that way. And one of the things I learned going around the business was that Bill, Bill Everett told me I could never have done Daredevil without Jack's help. And Don Heck told oh, me wow. I could never have done, you know, Iron Man and Avengers without Jack's help and other people like that. And, and people Jack even knew less well than them. They were not, mm-hmm. he didn't have to be a close friend, but also he would encourage young talent. Um, the worst, the, the, the only negative thing you might get out of Jack was you're too good to be working in comics. Uh-huh. If you came to Jack and said, Oh, I want to draw Spider-Man someday. He might say to you, you can be so much more than that. <laughs> <laughs> do, do do your own characters take them to new places you're you're you know you know i was working places because that's all i had you don't have to work in those places you can work someplace else and he was very proud of a lot of people who he met as fans at san diego or in his own studio and who then went on to publish something great or produce something original there's a quote that you may have heard that again one of those things i was there to hear it so I feel the obligation to preserve it and report it, which is that some fanzine mentioned some new kid was going to take over drawing Captain America. 
And he said, and I'm going to do stories in the Kirby tradition. And Jack said, the kid doesn't get it. The Kirby tradition is to create a new book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and that, that like some, I, I, you know, a little bell went off my head. Oh, got to, got to quote that someday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because that was it. Jack did not like looking backwards. He was always yeah. in the next project, the most exciting new thing he was going to do, what he was going to do in the next that he'd never done before. Mm-hmm. And uh, like that. Yeah. That actually, you just give me the perfect segue to like the other big question that I was hoping to get some insight into, uh, which is, you know, we know that with the way that Jack was treated both in his, his time at Marvel in the sixties. And then when he returned for a couple of years in the late seventies um, and, and with the, you know, all the, the issues uh, that he had with getting his original art returned and getting proper credit, you know, uh, definitely had his share of negative experiences, was he, despite that, was he able to look back on his Marvel years in any way, like in, in a positive way? Or was that something that really is like, you know, like I, I, I got kicked around enough. I'm, I'm excited for whatever I'm doing next, but I don't want to, you know, I, I don't really think positively or at all about that time. Um, no, he thought about it a lot because he, people mm-hmm. were always talking to him about it. I mean, sure. Every, yeah. Everybody who met Jack started telling them the first comic they fell in love with or, right. or how much I love the thing or I love Thor. Or I love Commandy or whatever. I mean, you know, to, to be around Jack was to hear this all the time. Um, he was not bitter about um, the times. He, he did what he felt he had to do at that time. To, and and it was it was not always what he wanted to do, but you know a lot of us don't get to do what we want to do. Um, a lot of us do things because that's what's available to us this week. Um, I just got the phone with a friend of mine who's doing a job he hates. Uh, this, this is not in comics, but it's what he needs. It's the job available to him at this point. It is the thing that will pay his mortgage and the thing that will keep his family solvent and such, and you get through that and you hope that something better comes along at some point or that this bad job turns into a good job as bad jobs occasionally do. Um, I mentioned earlier that I had an appointment to meet Wally Wood at the comic convention that 1970, we were sitting in a uh, area off from the convention on the same floor, but we were, we were a part of the, you know, the hotel that wasn't actively hosting the convention Mm -hmm. And we were sitting there talking and he was telling me how much he loved Jack. Jack had no bigger fan than Wally Wood at this point. And, and, and Jack loved Wally on many levels. Um, didn't want to work with him very much because there were personal problems yeah. there, but he loved Wally in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and kids would come up to us. They found us there. They were looking for Wood because they heard he was on the premises. And they all had issues of the EC science fiction comics to sign. Nobody brought him a daredevil. Nobody brought him a mad. Nobody brought him a two fisted tails or any of the other things he did or a wits end or anything. They all brought weird science or weird fantasy issues came up and said, excuse me, Mr. Wood, could you sign this? So Wood would, without even saying anything, he was not a very, you know, effusive person. He would take the, he'd tell them to take the comic out of the bag because you know, you don't want to take the comic out of the bag, have it hit the tape and you tear the comic. You want the, right. uh, he'd take them and he would open the cover 
just enough to expose the bottom of the first page of the comic. And he would write his name on it, even though he may not have drawn that first story in the comic. <laughs> and he'd close the comic and hand it back to me. And after I saw him do this a few times, I said, you're trying not to look at the comic? He says, yeah, it reminds me of too much pain I had. I look at the stories. Um, I remember how, how upset I was that day or how bad I felt that those weeks or whatever. He just, it had bad, he had bad memories associated with the work. Jack was never like that. Jack would be glad to sign anything he'd ever done for you. Uh, and, and to talk, he'd rather talk with you than sign something. He'd rather, he'd rather talk to you about you. He would ask you questions. If you, Jack would answer your questions, but you had to answer his and he'd ask you what you were doing. And if you said, I was, I'm, uh, um, I, I babysit baby rhinoceroses. He'd ask you questions about baby rhinoceroses. He, he was interested in everything and everybody and wanted to know about you, um, which is not true of everybody in the industry, obviously. No. But, but um, he, he, he was, you know, he was frustrated at the people he felt had let him down or yeah. betrayed him or lied to him or had otherwise, you know, harmed his ability to provide for his family. Uh, he had an amazing work ethic. No matter how upset he was, he could sit down and draw three pages today, today or four pages today. He could remove himself. He could The term they use now is compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. He could put the problems completely out of his head, go into Asgard or go into New Genesis or wherever the story was set and be in that realm for the next six hours or 10 hours, whatever. He could stop it and go have dinner with the family and then go back into that other world. Uh, Jack did not drive a car because he tended to just forget he was driving a car and drive off the road. That's the kind of stuff I've been curious about. Like how, how yeah. much of a, a, I mean, I, I knew that yeah. Ross helped him, you know, in most ways helped. Yeah. Ra, Ra, Jack, Jack Kirby was a two person team. Roz did all the stuff that made it possible for him to draw that got him to the board. And then she would come in, she'd wake up in bed at five in the morning and re realize Jack's side of the bed was unslept in. And she'd, you know, <laughs> shuffle into the studio and say, Kirby, come to bed. But she always called him Kirby. And he'd say, one more minute. I got to save the universe. You know, <laughs> give me, let, me, let me finish this paddle. And she'd drag him off to bed and took very good care of him. I, you know, you would wish, you know, you could have a life partner who would treat you as, as they were as close as people. One time after Jack, uh, after, after Jack had died, I took Roz to a convention. I think it was a WonderCon in Oakland. I, I, she was a guest and we flew up together and I kind of, you know, was her, her escort, whatever. And somebody in, the, in a question and answer thing said, do you think Jack ever cheated on you? It was a very tactless <laughs> question to ask a widow. And she said, when? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he would have had to have someone waiting outside when I went to the market. <laughs> I'd say, I'll be back in uh, in a half hour, Jack. And he'd go, fine, I'll be drawing here. And then I get in the car and I drive to the market. And then the girlfriend sneaks out of it, runs into the house and they have their affair. And by the time I get back with the tuna fish, Jack is back at the drawing table. And has already finished a page. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, Jeez. You know, it, it was a very funny answer. I'm not, do I'm, I'm not doing it justice here, but that was the answer. I remember she said, when? <laughs> they were not apart very often. Oh, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and, I, and Jack would be at a convention. Um, 
signing autographs and talking to people. And one of the things that he had to do was to say, I'm not doing sketches because kids literally they'd be on eBay 20 minutes uh-huh. later. I mean, uh-huh. and you know, you can't, you can't, again, if you're concerned about your family, you can't keep giving away your artwork for free to strangers. Mm-hmm. Although he did it a number of times and, and such. So, so Roz would sit there and play bad cop and kid would come up and say, Jack, would you just do me a drawing of all the X-Men? And, and, and before Jack could say anything, the kid would Roz would cut in and say, no, he's not doing any sketches. Yeah. So at some point Roz would have to go to the ladies room and she'd go, Mark, come here, sit here and tell, say no to everybody. <laughs> and I, and I, and, and I had to be the bad guy who sat yeah. there and said, no, Mr. Kirby is not doing sketches. I'm sorry. And some people really hated me for that. Uh-huh. Uh, well, uh, thanks for saying yes to us for this thing. Uh, this has been absolutely incredible. Everything we could have hoped for and more. Um, it, it just to have spent, you know, we've been doing this show now for, I guess, about two and a half years. Every week we do another month. Um, and we... Jack Kirby has spent a lot of time in our heads uh, these last couple, three years. Um, And to be able to talk to someone who not only knew him as well as you did, but is able to articulate the experience of what that was like. uh, You're bringing him to life for us um, and just cannot thank you enough. Well, I wish I wish you'd had a chance to meet him. You would have loved him. Uh, he would be thrilled that you guys were doing this. I listened to, I listened to some of when you asked me to do this, I listened to some of your stuff and it's very, I love the enthusiasm for it. I love the insights. The fact that you, you, you treat it with exactly the right amount of seriousness, <laughs> which is not, not, not too much and not too right. little. Um, and, 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 um, and Jack was, you know, I, I just, I, I have, I go through life with this and, and burden is the wrong word. It's, I guess it's a responsibility. I feel like, mm-hmm. I have to, you know, tell people, answer the question, what was Jack Kirby like? Because I was honored enough to have that happen. And it was one of the most important things in my life in ways that I still am figuring out. I'm still mm-hmm. amazed. I, I, I tell people that I owe an awful lot of my career to Jack. I don't want to give it all to him because there were other people who helped me. But it's hard to say because I didn't go into his line of work. I don't draw, I never drew comics. I never really wrote a lot of his kind of comics uh-huh. that I did. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't, I didn't do a lot of superheroes. I was always the guy who'd say, give me the non-superhero book to do. I'd rather do Black Hawk than Batman or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, but I learned an awful lot from him about how to treat people, I think, or at least I, I saw an ideal there, which you try to measure up to. And I learned a lot about work ethics. Jack had an incredible work ethic. You've heard the stories of how much work he did and how hard he worked. And, and it wasn't just that he was fast. He was fast, but he also would sit there uh, night and day doing a lot of pages and producing work. And I'd watch him draw occasionally, and I would just be amazed that someone could do that, could draw that fast and that well with, without underdrawing, without doing lots of roughs first. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I and I rush and, and I get to do podcasts. I don't talk that much about myself because I can talk about Jack, <laughs> which is a much vastly more interesting story, <laughs> a, a more, more, much more interesting than anything I've that's happened to me in my life, um, except for the stuff that happened to me because of Jack. Hey, there you go. Well, uh, if anyone uh, is listening to this uh, and you, you want to learn more. Uh, about Jack Kirby. Uh, you you cannot do any better uh, than picking up a copy 
of uh, Mark Evanier's book, Kirby King of Comics. Uh, it, it seriously, we've each read it multiple times by just, this point. Oh, um, it is yeah. a delight there, to go back. And there's, there's a much longer book coming. I hope in the next couple of years. Oh, oh boy. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's too already too long. I've got to figure <laughs> out what to do with it, but, but it, it's an exhaustive subject. It's he's such, such an amazing man. Uh, and I've, you know, very privileged uh, in, in many ways, on many levels that I got to know him and be with him and, uh, and, and, you know, the whole world around him. He, yeah. he opened, he opened doors for me every place. I do love your, um, your anecdotal story at the very end of the book. So I, reading the book, I feel so emotionally invested in Jack's life and work at this point, And I have most of my life, but I, you know, you get, you get to the end. It's nice that he gets to the animation studios and gets an actual, you know, salary and benefits finally. <laughs> health. He got health yeah. insurance. Yeah. And then he had a heart yep. attack, you know, yep. That's the right order to do those things. You don't have you don't have the heart attack and then get yeah. the health insurance. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, well, gentlemen, keep that up. You do fine work, and uh, <laughs> if you want me back sometime, I got another hour of Kirby stories. Oh, oh fantastic! So, yeah, yeah. Uh, pick up Kirby King of Comics uh, while you're uh, putting in a book order. Um, order yourself a copy of Gru Meets Tarzan. <laughs> it's coming out in March. Uh, it's awesome. It's so it's, much it, fun. Well, the, the whole the miniseries is already out. It's Sergio, yeah. another amazing person. I could talk for a couple hours about him. Um, you know, I get a free ride with a lot of these people. people there you go. I, people think I, I must, must you know, have something going for me because I hang out with guys like Jack and Sergio. It's, <laughs> it, fool, it fools people. They think I have a value. Oh. <laughs> that is somehow, somehow commensurate with those guys. Um, but uh, no, uh, I'll tell you the other thing that I am very proud of doing is that I, I am the editor, co-editor of the Pogo reprints. Yes. Uh, Walt Kelly was maybe my favorite cartoonist of that genre of all time. And it is a pleasure to, to uh, bring those books. I'm very proud of them, even though what's wonderful about them has nothing to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We just paste, we just paste up old, old strips and, and people think, oh, what a, what a great book you did, Mark. We know a little bit about, um, uh, you know, talking about other great people's work. That's what we do on this show. You know, we we do our yep. own things and we create our own things. But um, it's so fun. And so uh, I, we've learned so much about ourselves and what we want to do as creators and how it works by breaking down how these things were made. And, and your insights... Mm-hmm are just are adding to that as well. And I also love to hear your actual voice after reading grew letters pages for so many years, <laughs> which seems so oh, in uh, exactly in keeping with how, how it seemed like you seemed like a, a good witty friend that was self-deprecating. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. uh, you see, I've got you, I got you full, full, very nice. This is actually not my voice. I have a guy off camera here dubbing. <laughs> oh, you're so good. Yeah. It's Frank Welker. He does, he dubs everybody. Oh boy. He's so it's, good. He's, he's so good. Good in everything. There's another, another person I've been honored to work with and oh boy, stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. So, all well, right. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been terrific. And boy, I mean, I guess that's it for us for this season. Uh, we're not gonna. We're not gonna top this. We're just. No. Gonna, we're gonna go out on this note. Oh, I, uh, I bet. You, I bet you can. 
<laughs> uh, the, I'll bet you can. Uh, the next time you hear us, uh, it will be to talk about the first month of Jack Kirby-less Marvel Comics, which that's going to be strange. Yeah. Um, so uh, until then, for Marvel by the Month, I'm Brian Stratton. And I'm Rob Milne. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay inside and read comics. And the other thing that I always think is nice is that same thing that's nice about comic conventions, you can become instant friends with guys who are into comics. You, yeah. we, we get along. You, you three of us get along great. You guys right. already got along great, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, we fit right in yeah. and, and, yeah. and it's, we have common interests and, uh, and the same backdrops. We kind of, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's just, there's not a lot of us. So, uh, when you do find someone who's as crazy about this weird hobby, uh, you it's, know, it, you, you got to hang on to them. There's, a, there's, an, there's an awful lot of it. Did you ever hear the story of what happened to me in a Costco in Tustin? Did you ever see, hear that? I don't think so. No. Well, real briefly. I, yeah. I, I used to have my, my, my girlfriend, Carolyn for many years, for 20 years, she died of cancer a couple of years ago. Hmm. She was the daughter of Walt Kelly. So that's why I inherited Pogo. Wow. Uh, I, I, yes. I, I now I inherited all of her belongings. So I now have the world's largest collection of Walt Kelly's old phone bills. And uh, so, uh, and, and, and a lot of neat pictures and artwork and stuff too. Yeah. The, the phone yeah. bills are funny. So um, I have, I took her down to a, uh, uh, a doctor in Tustin. She didn't drive. I drive her down there once every two weeks and I leave her at the doctor's office and I would, kill two hours and then go pick her up and bring her home. So I went to a Costco one day in Tustin and I bought stuff. I got, you know, all the obligatory things, you know, the, the, I got the toilet paper and I got the paper towels. Uh, I used to say they won't let you out without those, but, uh, <laughs> but now they will because they're out of them. Right. So, <laughs> so there was a, a CD-ROM for sale for $9 or $7. It was the first 10 issues of Fantastic Four, the first 10 issues of Spider-Man, the first 10 issues of Thor, first 10 issues of the Avengers. It was like, you know, 200 vintage Marvel comics on CD-ROM for $7. I thought, okay. well, this could come in handy. So sure. I put it in my cart, and I'm now I'm checking out, and the stuff's going down the conveyor belt, and there's this 17-year-old Hispanic kid who is – at the end of the conveyor belt is putting the stuff in boxes or bags or whatever. And the CD-ROM goes down the conveyor belt and he picks it up and he, it's got Jack Kirby drawings on the outside panels, the covers of the, the comics in it. And he turns to me and he says, these were drawn by Jack Kirby, the greatest comic book artist ever. Marvel <laughs> fucked him over. <laughs> wow. And I stop and I look to see where is my, Costco card or my credit card. Did the kids see my name and put those together? And he didn't. He mm -hmm. was just saying this to someone to him was a total stranger. Because <laughs> they were buying this thing with Jack. Well, he just he he felt like if you're gonna buy this these stories, you should know who Jack Kirby was. Yeah. God bless and him. I, and I said to him, <laughs> I know who Jack Kirby was. <laughs>
you know, wow. I, I knew Jack Kirby you know, and he was, he, he almost, I didn't believe that when I, I told him my name, he didn't recognize it, which wow. is fine. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's not going to, but he knew, you know, the, oh, you knew Jack Kirby. And I don't know if he believed me, but it was, it was like, you knew Santa Claus. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you, right. you bet the Easter bunny. Um, and uh, so, you know, that was like, um, that, that, and I've had a lot of those experiences. People, yeah. Jack's fame grows. People know how much he did. He know, they, 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 they start asking me about Stan Lee and it's, that's a very difficult question sometimes, yeah, yeah. which, because I have some genuine lingering angers at Stan. I'm the only person who ever worked for both men. Really? Yeah. I'm the only person alive who ever worked for both Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And, uh, and I have, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, and you see where my loyalties lie. Yeah. <laughs> He's an unknown challenger, a fighting American. Jack. 